Running Backwards. Episode 4. <clears throat> Mr. Gulliver was sitting at his card table once more, although on this occasion his attention was not directed at the snooker. Instead, he was leaning forward, fixated on something he was holding in his hands. For a moment I wondered whether I was sufficiently nimble to creep behind the bar, where I assumed the mail was deposited, take custody of my allowance, and then exit the premises, all without alerting the old man to my presence. Naturally, I wasn't. A letter come for you, Mr. Gunnover grumbled without looking round. Like an idiot, I crept another step, as if pretending that I wasn't there would somehow nullify his knowledge that I was, but then I stopped being a dick and walked over to him. I told him that I was very sorry to hear about his wife, which somewhat repudiated earlier events, but wholly on compassionate grounds, of course. He just sighed, and I couldn't tell if it was the sound of desolation or delight. Looking down at him, I could now see what he was holding in his fat-fingered little hands. The photograph depicted Mr. and Mrs. Gulliver in their prime. That is to say, slightly less shabby, flabby, and sour than I knew them, and a third party, a tall man with a nice face, standing close to Mr. Gunniver. Mrs. Gunniver hovered a step away, staring at the two men without affection, whilst her husband displayed a broad smile and looked positively euphoric. It took me a moment to notice that he was holding hands, like lovers do, with the tall man. I had assumed that the vociferously contested Nigel was an estranged son, but discovering that he might have been the participant in a bisexual love triangle was far more interesting. I was friendly for a while with our window cleaner. He was an educated young gentleman in his late twenties who could have spent his life making far more money doing something far less useful, but he had somehow found his Arcadia up a ladder with a squeegee. From this vantage point one afternoon he witnessed my daughter parading self-consciously in her underwear, as if by accident. In a laudable demonstration of scrupulous good manners, he advised me of this incident, sotto voce so as not to embarrass, and modestly shrugged off my deduction that she had a crush on him, humbly reassuring me that sometimes it happens. Latterly I've often wished that she could have landed someone like him as a boyfriend, rather than a floppy-topped amateur fuckwit like Dan. Having taken a measure of him over several months, I probed, politely, as to why he had chosen window-cleaning as his vocation. Again he was disarmingly straightforward, explaining that he had studied theology at university before enrolling at a Catholic seminary, fully intent on progressing into the priesthood, but over time he had accepted that he could not reconcile his homosexuality with his faith, and had chosen to set both aside. 
His sacrifice was heartbreaking and beautiful, but also really bloody stupid. If wanting a shag forces you to give up being a god-botherer, at least get out and do some shagging. I guess I'm lucky in that I've never been forced to forego anything of great worth in order to build the life that I have, although I was strong-armed into granting my wife exclusive occupancy of the side of the bed nearest the window. Sally enjoyed the draught, but I hated being near the door because the bathroom was across the landing and you could always hear when somebody went for a poo. Mr. Gunnivor, I suppose, as with the window cleaner, had been required to choose. Seemingly he'd prioritised the covenant with his wife and had perhaps forfeited a life which might have brought greater contentment. I asked if the man in the picture was Nigel, and he looked up at me, startled, and nodded. Before the moment could linger, he hauled himself to his feet and headed for the bar. I'll get your letter. I'm not the sort to impose my advice on others, for the simple reason that it invariably turns out to be dog shit, but I did suggest to the back of Mr. Gunnivor's head that he should call him. He turned with a sad half-smile. You think? I nodded and told him, don't be alone. Of course I didn't say that. Doing so would require an agility of thought and a gift for spontaneous lyricism. Instead, I just mumbled something vaguely affirmative and immediately started worrying that I'd done the wrong thing. Mr. Gunnivor inclined his head thoughtfully and made his way past the optics to a wooden pigeonhole nailed to the wall next to the nuts, from which he retrieved the customary brown envelope. I moved to take it from him, and as I neared the bar, the smell struck me anew. Presumably I grimaced, because Mr. Gunnivor wrinkled his nose in sympathy and tipped a nod to the bottom of the stairs, where his late wife was slowly bloating. "'I'd better get a shovel,' he said. Whilst my approach to the Seaview Hotel had been far from the apotheosis of stealth, my exit was a masterclass in graceless, flappy-handed running away. I fell over twice, further traumatising my trousers, and, amped on adrenaline, I managed to yank my bike out of the mud with seemingly superhuman strength after three attempts and a bit of a breather. Where are all the public telephones? The stench of stale urine which denoted their location used to linger on every street corner when I was a kid. Most of them seem to have defibrillators in them now, or smug little lending libraries, or they've been relocated to middle-class gardens as witty totems of stylistic originality, in accordance with the dictates laid down by Country Life magazine. I could have used my mobile, but the police can ping cell towers or something and call in airstrikes. I rode around for an hour through shuttered villages before I found a promising row of shops on the fringes of a scruffy little town. There was indeed a payphone, and also a post office, 
a haberdashery and a general store offering videos for rent. Apparently I'd been riding for so long that I'd made it all the way back to the 1980s. My motorbike and fashion sense felt right at home. I called for an ambulance and gave the address of the Seaview Hotel. Then I panicked and scoured the area for CCTV cameras before remembering that this was the 80s and such things were the fanciful imaginings of silly sci-fi movies. Returning to the Travelodge, I faced a walk of shame through the lobby, with my disgusting trousers flapping at the ankle, looking for all the world like I'd shat myself so violently that the pressure had escaped down one leg and ruptured the stitching. A bored man at reception looked up at me, and I was too awkward not to grin sheepishly and explain that I'd fallen off my bike. He looked down again. He'd probably seen worse things in a budget hotel in the middle of the night. By the time I'd showered and changed, my adventure at the Seaview Hotel had migrated from the category of current crisis to the folder marked Top Anecdotes. That's quite a slim archive. I rarely find myself in interesting times. It was satisfying, however, to reach the conclusion of a dramatic chapter during which I had managed to avoid discovery and just about hang on to my integrity. The cherry on the cake, of course, was the fact that I had found occasion to, perhaps in a small way, help Mr. Gulliver discover a path to happiness after a lifetime of veiled heartache. The local news reported the next day that a 76-year-old man was being questioned by police under suspicion of pushing his wife down two flights of stairs to her death, but I was on the road by then and missed the headline. On Thursday, I sent a text message to Mark Barry, apprising him of my recent movements and giving instruction for the delivery of my next instalment addressed to a Mr. Pat Damon, if you would be so kind. I washed my hands afterwards and wiped my phone with a T-shirt. The very act of communing, even electronically, with Mark Barry, leaves me feeling soiled. There wasn't a great deal to distract at the holiday park, other than watching a man with a strimmer regret his attempts to scythe a stand of sodden nettles. He was dripping with mulch and looking very sorry for himself, and that was entertaining for about half an hour, but practical matters were pressing. My motorbike trousers had barely withstood the journey to York, despite my attempts to secure the ruined leg with sellotape. The monsoon had quickly seen to that, and I had travelled for the majority of the distance with a soggy flap of cuff catching in the wind and making an interesting thrum, which reminded me of the days when we'd poke playing cards in our spokes to make our little kid bicycles sound like the motorbikes we'd dreamt of. I don't remember a middle-aged man with a sore ass featuring heavily in the reverie. I'd set out for York on the heels of a conversation I remembered having thirty years ago with a girl called Sophie Smith. Her name wasn't Sophie Smith, but that will have to suffice. 
we shared English literature lectures and floated around in similar social circles for a while. I might be endowing my younger self with a greater measure of manly charm than I could justifiably claim to have possessed, but I'm fairly certain that we fancied each other. At that age, I fancied almost anyone who walked upright, but Sophie actively sought my company, and I probably misinterpreted this as the signifier of a fledgling romantic connection. It goes without saying that nothing happened, and that was perfectly fine. Romance was always so much easier to endure when you could fantasize about what it might be without having to experience what it actually was. Breaking up with a girl you never went out with was a doddle. As is compulsory with students, Sophie and I speculated on the future. I was going to draw graphic novels with John Hardle and live in the States. It turns out that I draw boring diagrams by myself and live near Basingstoke, so that went swimmingly. Sophie's ambitions were perhaps more prosaic, but eminently less idiotic. She intended to teach at the primary school she herself had attended in York. I'm disagreeably pompous now, but was equally so back then, and I don't doubt that I privately scoffed at her paltry aspirations. Yet, contrary to my prejudice, it would not be at all unreasonable to assume that she achieved her goal, and in doing so established for herself a life of contentment, such as I have succeeded in avoiding by dint of being an insufferable, grandiloquent twat. However, herein lay the first clue that might unlock my quest, and as I'd done bugger all so far to progress my commission, it was probably about time to shit or get off the pot. Because Sophie Smith had also been friendly with John Hardle, and wasn't there a chance just the slim possibility that they had stayed in touch. It was a spurious theory at best, but Mark Barry was paying for my time, so I was more than happy to waste it. I'd failed to find Sophie Smith on Google, or rather I should say that I found thousands of Sophie Smiths on Google, but none who taught at a school I didn't know the name of in the city of York, and into that conundrum we must throw the patriarchal curveball of marriage and the likelihood that Sophie was no longer Smith. But nothing. I had no idea how to go about actually tracking her down and decided to walk into town on a hunt for some means of repairing my bedeviled trousers, hoping that an answer might reveal itself along the way. The world was damp, but the sun was out, and the first half-mile was thoroughly pleasant until I found myself strolling perilously close to a busy road and in need of a wee. I relieved myself in some bushes behind a bus stop and wondered what I must look like to any passing motorist who might have the misfortune of spotting me, tackle out in the thicket. 
My clothes were road-worn, and I was suffering from the onset of a horrible snaggly beard, although I don't think either of those things trumped the fact that I was indiscreetly taking a piss next to the A64. I've heard women complain of the physiological inequality which makes a gentleman's lavatorial options so simple and varied, but it's a repulsive convenience when exercised in public, and anyone doing so should have the requisite equipment violently removed. And yet here I was, betraying my own prudishness. Another mile or two delivered me to the tatty outskirts of the city, and the usual hacienda of lumpen superstore outlets. Amongst them was the inevitable DIY barn, and I did what I always do when necessity drags me into these vaulted edifices of masculine know-how. I walked with clear intent towards a random aisle and stared at whatever was on the shelf in front of me for long enough to convey the sense that I was there for a reason and knew exactly what I was doing. It's an affront to my gender to admit that I don't know one end of a spanner from the other, and my dear wife liked to suggest that if I was so much of a sissy that I had to get a man in to fix the shower, then maybe I should get one in to sort her out as well. In my defence, I have other skills, but none that would ensure my survival should the apocalypse befall us. Some minutes of diffident browsing brought me to the hand tools section, and I happened upon a rivet gun which seemed to provide a possible and crucially affordable means of securing the heavy fabric of my motorbike trousers. Pleased with myself, I bounced on my toes at the checkout, watching a broad-shouldered man in a plaid shirt purchase wood. On the whitewashed breeze-block wall behind the cashier, a large board provided a complete list of the store's management and staff, beneath a jaunty caption inviting disinterested patrons to meet the team. I read the names, wondering if there were any particularly ripe ones that I might scrump as pseudonyms for my writing, and somewhere around Geoffrey Bandstand an idea plopped into my prefrontal cortex. I whipped out my phone, and by the power of Google, quickly unearthed a list of all the primary schools within the ambit of the city of York. I followed a link to the first so indexed, and arrived at a rudimentary website boasting an image of bored children nodding off in a circle around a shiny man identified in the caption as a local MP. Poor little bastards! As if wheels on the bus and religious indoctrination weren't enough, they were having politics inflicted upon them as well. The ubiquitous three-bar menu dropped down to offer a range of enthralling trivia, amongst which I discovered the prize I had been seeking, a list of school staff. They were identified by just their initial and surname, but the deputy headmistress was named as a Mrs. S. Griffin. Could S. be Sophie? 
now happily married to a balding geography teacher called Alan Griffin, who likes cats but prefers dogs. And if not this S, then perhaps another S at another school nearby. Surely this was the key, the first link in the chain that would eventually lead me to the resolution that I wasn't especially eager to arrive at. This train of thought was prevented from advancing by the pasty youth behind the till, who suggested, with a derisory gum-chewing grin, that I might want to buy some actual rivets to accompany my rivet gun. Acting the charming old scatterbrain, I scuttled back to the tool aisle and quickly thereafter left the shop, dragging my tattered manhood behind me. On the way home to the holiday park, I was possessed by an urgent requirement to shit, but there was no way I was doing that in a bush. With gritted teeth and clenched buttocks, I made it back without accident and left my deposit at the blockhouse toilet rather than trusting the unpleasant chemical commode which occupied a cupboard next to the bed in my unit. Taking full advantage of the park's prodigious Wi-Fi, I quickly set to work compiling a list of local primary schools employing one or more female teachers with a Christian name beginning with S. Mere child's play, I thought, a little too satisfied with the thematic consonants of the cliché, as I laid out a modest spreadsheet to accommodate the half-dozen or so entries I predicted. It turns out that York has 63 primary schools, more than half of which have one or more members of staff with the initial S. Only one of the 63 bothered to give its teachers their full name, but none of them was Sophie. The closest was Sohalia, and I'm too old, white and unenlightened to know whether that was even a girl's name or a boy's name. I'm entirely lazy enough to assume that it was a girl's name, based solely on the evidence of my own limited experience of primary schools, which suggested that teachers are predominantly of the female persuasion, but it was an irrelevant matter anyway, and I spent some time wondering why I was spending so much time wondering about the gender assignment of a name that was fundamentally immaterial to my research. Have you ever filled out a spreadsheet? Of course, I digressed. It has got to be the single most dispiriting occupation the modern world has inflicted upon us. Like Sisyphean Sudoku without the meaningless elation of something adding up to nine, or whatever the hell Sudoku is about. It took me a full 24 hours to compile my list, during which time I had two showers, walked ten circuits of the park, ate six packets of instant noodles, watched E.T. on my laptop, and spent an hour nodding at the man with the strimmer as he talked about sport without ever noticing that I knew nothing and didn't give a shit. I now had a neatly tabulated record of 37 S-names spread across 32 institutions and absolutely no idea of what to do next. 
I tried image-searching the schools in the faint hope that somewhere within the parade of baffled infants in nativity wear, gawping at something out of shot while some cack-handed amateur pap tried to capture something resembling an in-focus, right-way-up cast photo, I might spot somebody who looked like Sophie Smith might look thirty years after I'd last seen her and if she could be standing in a beam of ethereal light, wearing a badge reading, I am Sophie Smith, that would be most advantageous. Not a bloody hope. However, this exercise did suggest a possible way forward. I don't have the first clue how to go about trawling census data and records of birth, deaths and marriages, at least not without losing my mind and attempting to flush my computer down the chemical toilet, but I do have an acute eye and an astute visual recall, which boils down in legible terms as the ability to look at stuff and remember it. Party tricks are the preserve of loquacious dullards who think that pulling a length of spaghetti through their nose makes them exotic, but I do have one futile talent in that I can identify within a reasonable margin of error almost any movie I've ever seen simply by watching a second or less of a randomly chosen scene. Unfortunately, beyond the title, I have no ability to recollect any associated facts, such as who was in it, and it is therefore a skill devoid of any captivating payoff and not one I'd ever been tempted to demonstrate in public. Importantly, though, I could do a similar thing with faces, and I was sufficiently confident in my ability to recognise Sophie Smith, despite the intervening years, that some method of simply seeing each member of staff at each of the schools would allow me to determine whether or not she was amongst them. And if she was then surely it would be simplicity itself to stage-manage a chance encounter and set to reminiscing. Google was evidently a dead end, and it seemed clear that I would have to proceed on shoe leather rather than arse fat. Surveillance, that was the answer. And the essence of surveillance? Looking at stuff, which I'm quite good at, as previously indicated. Once you've dragged a child through the school system for 15 years, the daily routine is burned indelibly onto your soul, and you'll likely find yourself on your deathbed instinctively checking your watch at half-past two because you don't want to miss pick-up. I calculated that there were five opportunities on any weekday to observe the teachers at my target schools. Drop-off, morning playtime, lunch afternoon playtime, and pick-up. I could extend that to seven if I could be bothered to get there early enough to watch the staff arrive and hang around after school long enough to watch them leave. Let's start with the five, I decided. Theoretically, therefore, I could cover five locations in one day and be done with all 32 in just over a week. Somebody cleverer than me probably the kind of freak who actually enjoys a good spreadsheet, 
could no doubt calculate exactly how abysmal my odds are of making an accurate survey using this approach, but I am quite comfortable with the undoubted shortcomings of my plan. A better plan, after all, might accelerate my assignment towards its completion, and that is not a prospect I anticipate with delight. It's not just that the destination is frightening. I can't deny that I am beginning to enjoy the journey. Happily, tomorrow is Saturday, and I have no choice other than to take a couple of days off. On Monday, and more through duty than desire, I shall, as I must, start hanging around the school gates. Running Backwards was written by Nick Forshaw and performed by Stuart Organ. Direction was by Alex Cazalet and the producer was Steve Manley. It was a Barefoot Ape production. If you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review and tell your friends. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit runningbackwards.co.uk. Listener.